Well, if you'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts in chapter 4, that's where we will be this morning. Acts chapter 4. Last time that we gathered, Peter and John were captive. They'd been taken captive by the religious leaders that they had just testified before. They were given the opportunity to testify before the leaders and the elders of the temple, the religious leaders of that day. And they were being put to trial because they had done something that apparently to them was an atrocity. This man that had sat at the the temple gate for about 40 years, was not able to walk, and they walked up to him, and he looked at them, and you know he was asking for alms, he needed money, and they looked at him, they didn't have anything to offer him, but they said, look, we don't have any silver, we don't have any gold, but what we do have, we offer to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. So they picked him up, and they didn't just pick him up, and he fell over again. He rose, he stood up, He jumped up and he started praising God in the temple. Well, that kind of caused an uproar amongst the people of God because they had never seen anything like this, many of them. And many of them had witnessed this guy sitting there for that amount of years. And so it was just, it it caused quite a stir. And so when he walked into the temple, he started praising God. and, And all the people started standing around Peter and John and saying, what just happened here? What? How did that happen? And so they started telling them, it wasn't us. Don't look at us as if we have this power to raise people from the dead or, or raise a, a lame person. But it was the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and the resurrection is the same power that we've used, we've called upon to raise this man to be able to walk. And so they start talking about how Jesus was the one that did it. Now to them, this is confusing because Jesus has been put to death on the cross. He's no longer alive in their minds. And so they're perplexed. And all of a sudden there's these religious leaders that gather around that were a part of that, making sure that Jesus was no longer around. They wanted him put to death. They wanted him silenced. And they start gathering around the apostles and saying, wait a minute, why are you talking about Jesus again? He's not here anymore. So it greatly disturbed them that they were preaching in Jesus' name. And so we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. But verse 2 says it was the leaders there were greatly disturbed. Uh, Verse 1 and 2 in the ESV puts it this way. I, 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 I teach from the New King James Version, but that doesn't mean that's the only Bible we can read from. I want to point that out because many people get in discussions about which one is the true Bible. Well, uh, as long as it's not the Book of Mormon or some crazy translation, uh, the ESV is good, the New King James, the Old King James, if you're old school and you want to hear these and thous, read that. Just read it. But I was listening, as I typically do on my way to work. I sometimes will listen through the passage because I'll hear things when I'm listening that I won't notice when I'm reading with my eyes. I, I learn differently. So I was listening to the English Standard Version on the way in uh, one of the days last week. And it said there in verse 1 and 2, it didn't say that the leaders and the Sadducees were greatly disturbed. What it said in verse 1 and 2 was, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now I think we get a little bit better idea of what 
the leaders of the of the Jewish temple were they, they weren't just they weren't just disturbed like what is he teaching they were annoyed they're tired of hearing about this man Jesus he's been stirring up their people and causing them to do all kinds of stuff you know they're eating on the on the sabbath they're going out and they're they're pulling grain out of the field they're they're not washing their hands according to the traditions of the elders and they've they've and he's saying that he's god he's teaching this to people so they put him to death as if he was a false prophet. In the Old Testament, they were told, hey, if you get a, somebody that comes and draws you away and says you need to follow after this other God, you need to stone him because he's a false prophet. He's not of God. Well, the problem is they didn't recognize that this was the Messiah that they said that, that the, the Old Testament just over and over told them, I'm going to send a Messiah. He's going to be the Redeemer of Israel. They thought it was going to be some sort of king. But instead, it ended up being this man that they thought he was going to be like this handsome guy and he was going to come in, he was going to take over the leadership of their country. But instead, he had to first come and he had to deal with the sin issue because everything in their ritual said, you need to sacrifice an animal. You need to come uh, and cover your sins with the blood of some innocent animal in order to be right with God. But instead, Jesus came as the pure son of God. He never sinned. And then his blood was shed in our place, not an animal, but now a human being that never sinned, atoned for our sin. His sacrifice, his death, his blood being shed in our place, atoned for our sin. And I always think of the word atonement as at one He makes us one with God. He breaks down the, the middle wall of separation so that you and I no longer have to come through a priest like they did in the Old Testament. But now we come to our high priest, Jesus Christ, who was the one that made the sacrifice for your and I's sin. But the only difference between him and the priest in the Old Testament is that when he made the sacrifice, not only was he the priest, he's our high priest, but he was the sacrifice. He was that innocent lamb. He's the lamb of God. And so when he was sacrificed, his death paid for you and I so that we can just go straight into the throne room of God and say, Lord, I need help. We can pray. We can ask him for help in time of need. We can ask him to be there with us. So as they're continuing to teach about Jesus, this Jesus that they, they despised him, they hated him. He kept stirring up the crowd. He kept calling to question their motives for why they did things religiously. And they didn't like that. So they were greatly annoyed at this, these people continuing to proclaim the name of Jesus. So as they're continuing to be unannoyed, excuse me, annoyed and they put these men, Peter and John, to trial, what they do is as they put him to trial, they start asking them questions. Why are you preaching in this name? And so Peter and John start to testify. Hey, it was Jesus that rose this guy. He was lame. He couldn't walk. Everyone saw him and now he's walking. I don't see why we're going to be punished if we've done a good deed here. And that's right, right? I mean, sometimes we, we feel like I did something right. Why are we getting in trouble for it? They've done all kinds of stuff in their past lives that they should have gotten in trouble, but they didn't. But all of a sudden, now that they're preaching the name of Jesus, it's a big deal to the religious leaders. But as they testified to the fact that it was Jesus that did it, what they noticed, what the, their enemies, the Sadducees, the leaders of the temple, the elders of Israel, what they noticed about Peter and John is that they were, number one, bold. Number two, that they were uneducated. Number three, that they were untrained. 
And number four, that they had been with Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. If someone were given the opportunity to sum up your life and they, they, this, these were the four things that they had to say about you, would you be okay with it? You know, What do you think about so-and-so? Well, he wasn't very smart. Um, he wasn't trained in what he was supposed to be doing. Uh, but what I do know about him is that he was bold and that he had been with Jesus. I'm okay with that. Now, there are days when people say things to me and it makes me feel like I'm stupid and I get upset about it. But the reality is, <laughs> most of the stuff they call the question that I've done, it is because I'm stupid. I forgot to do something. Uh, just the other day, <laughs> for instance, um, we get, somebody gave us for our wedding three years ago, two years ago, almost three, one of those uh, from Bed Bath and Bed and Bath Beyond or whatever. You ever go into that store? It's overwhelming. There's so much stuff in there. But they gave us this three-compartment uh, soap dispenser for our shower. And I thought, you know what? I don't need to use that. I mean, what do we need a soap dispenser for? We just set it on the shelf and just forget about it. A couple years later, I open up the box and there it is. We haven't unpacked it since we moved. And I'm like, hey, this actually could be pretty handy. We have people come over. We can just keep soap in there for them if they want to use the shower. We can label it. It's pretty cool. It's neat. So I install it. And I'm all excited. It's level. It's right at the right spot. And I start putting some soap in it, right? I'm going to fill And you can take them off. You can put different soaps in them. You can wash them out. But I, I put the soap in there. And I put it in there with an intention. I picked a specific soap because it was one that we would both use. I haven't filled the other two compartments yet. I, I, I had reasons for everything I did. Go figure. So... I get done with that, and I decide, you know what? And, and I start using it. I'm excited about it. It's a new thing. It's a new toy, right? So I'm using it every day. And apparently at one point, I forgot what kind of soap I put in there. I thought it was shampoo. And so I'm using it every day. And I'm just lathering up my hair, cleaning it. And uh, so at the end of the week, my wife says, hey, we need to go buy shampoo. We're running low. And I go, no, we're not. I just took all that soap. I put the shampoo in the dispenser. That's why it seems like we're out. She said, no, I'm pretty sure that's body wash. Well, I don't remember because I never labeled it. It's white soap, and they're all white. And so I'm like, okay, look, I put it in there. I was there. I know what you think, and I know how you feel about it, but I put it in there. I was there. I remember everything. That's me. And, uh, of course, she was very gracious. She was like, uh, okay, but I'm pretty sure that it's not shampoo. So anyway, she... Probably 10, 20 minutes later, she's like, I said, what are you, what are you doing? She goes, well, I, she had this Tupperware lid, and she was going to label with a dry erase marker all these different dots. She's going to put a little bit on each thing and see how, and I'm like, well, what is that going to prove? Well, apparently when soap lays down, it kind of spreads out, and you can tell the difference between them as they lay there just sitting there in the same conditions. Well, I'm looking at it, and I'm go, probably 20 minutes later, I go in there. She goes to the basketball game. It was Friday night, and I'm looking at it. I'm like, that soap looks completely different than all the other ones. And that's the shampoo, but it doesn't look like the one that's in the dispenser. Long story short, within three days of me installing this thing, I completely <laughs> forgot what kind of soap I put in there. I've been washing my hair with body wash all week. I wondered why the consistency of my hair was different. It wouldn't do anything. Anyway, that being said, a lot of the stuff that I do is stupid. <laughs> you know, I'm losing my mind. But the reality is, is that oftentimes we like to think that we're not, like we don't make mistakes. 
And at the end of my life, if all people say about me is that he was uneducated, it would be true. If he was untrained, most of the time that's true. But that he'd been with Jesus, that would be the biggest thing that people could say about me. It would be an honor. Let me ask you, do people, if they were going to list four things, they were asked to list four things about you, would they say you're a Christian? Would they know that without you even telling them? Hopefully you are telling them. But would they know that? But more than that, would they know that you had been with Jesus without you telling them? Could they recognize that in your life? Because I think most of the time, people may not recognize that about me. They might know I'm a pastor. They might know that I I read the word every morning, but they may not know. They may not be able to recognize that I've spent time with Jesus. Whatever it was about these men, the way they conducted themselves, the things that they had to say, these people, not just anybody, but their enemies, people that were against them, they couldn't argue with the fact that they had been with Jesus. May that be you and I's testimony. So, in line with what Paul wrote, I want to turn really quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, because this was his heart as well. Paul had been trained by the most classic of all the Jewish scholars. He had been trained by all the classic education people in his day. He grew up in a culture that was highly influenced by Greek culture, and so they were very sophisticated in the way they communicated, and he wanted to be educated and he was given into the finest schools. But here's what he had to say. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, he said to them, because the, their identity, what they took all their stock in was being uppity, being smart, being educated, being successful, being, some of them, more humble than the others. And they had thought very highly of themselves, and it caused there not only to be no one recognizing that they had been with Jesus, but number two, it caused division inside the church. And so he wrote to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. He said, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness and the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews, they request there to be a sign or a miracle. And Greeks, on the other side, they seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which to the Jews is a stumbling block, and to the Greeks is complete foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do you realize that? That when God is on his foolish day, if, if he were to have any foolishness in him, on the day that we would recognize it, if he was at his worst, he would be wiser than we are. And on his weakest day, he's stronger than any of us can ever be. He says in verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things or the normal things of the world, and the things which are despised 
God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. I praise the Lord for that fact because I'm foolish and because I make mistakes, but God chooses to use those kinds of people. Those kinds of people that recognize that they're humble, that they do make mistakes. And that's how he gets the glory. It says in there in verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. He says, but of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So I love that because it points to the fact that if we do have an identity in anything, even if we think we're good at stuff, the only identity that we can truly bank on is that Jesus is our Lord, that he is our salvation, that he is our wisdom, that he is our, uh, our strength. It, we can't have strength or wisdom apart from him. So long story short, they recognize that in these men. So verse 23 in Acts chapter 4. So they had been put to trial and uh, they had uh, been questioned concerning their motives for preaching and then they were let go. Verse 23. Being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, before I go on, I want to point out that they had been persecuted. They had been told before they were let go, we're going to let you go, but you're no longer to speak in the name of Jesus. We're tired of hearing about him. And frankly, it's not helping And so we want you to stop talking about Jesus because he's gone. He's done. If you keep talking about Jesus, you're going to get in more trouble. But their response was, was, their response being told to stop speaking in Jesus' name was to pray. But what did they really do first? That's my question for you. It seems that just in a few words, it says, when being let go, they went to their own companions and they reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So first and foremost, they went to their friends, they went to the other disciples, they went to the apostles, and they said, hey, look, we're being persecuted. But as any mature group of believers should do, when they hear one of us complaining, or going on and on, or trying to discuss things to fix them on our own, the first things that we can do to encourage one another is to stop and to pray. So they stopped and they told the Lord about it. I don't know about you guys, but my first reaction when I hear something's going really good or when my first reaction when something is going really bad is to go and tell someone. Not to tell God, but to tell someone. Just this week, I heard something that was really bad that was going on. And I don't think it's bad to at the same time communicate with other Christians and say, hey, I really, I really need prayer on this thing because we need each other to pray for one another. Sometimes we don't know what to pray. Sometimes praying with someone else reveals something that you would have never thought of because you're in the middle of it. Um, But I think oftentimes we lean on that to the point where we don't pray at all. We say, oh man, I really need prayer on this. So we go ask somebody else, hey, be praying about this. And, And they will. Sometimes they won't. But when we do that and we don't go to the Lord first, sometimes we miss out 
on really what God's trying to get us to do in the midst of that struggle. He wants us to trust Him. He wants us to cry out to Him, just like we want our children to rely upon us and, and hopefully uh, come to us when they have issues before it's too bad. You know, Lord, I don't know what to do in this situation. These guys are telling me not to preach in your name. And then go and tell our friends. Well, these guys did that in a way. But <clears throat> this week also, some things went on that were really good. And uh, the first thing I wanted to do was either call my wife and tell her or, you know, tell the guys that I had asked to pray at work. But when something blesses you and you want to go and tell the world, let me encourage you that the best thing that we can do to find joy and thankfulness is to give it to the Lord. Go and tell him first because he's the one that did it. If there's anything that's good that's happened in your life, God did it. James chapter 1 verse 17 says that every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. So when something goes well, thank the Lord first. Thank Him. And then if He used somebody to do it, thank them. Make sure that you let them know, hey, God used you. Because most of the time, servants of the Lord that get used, they don't get thanked. And it's not about getting to thank you, but it's also about finding out, hey, God's using me, even in this small way. God used me this week, and then they can be thankful too. <clears throat> a Christian, uh, well, that's what I wanted to say. Oftentimes what we do is we have something really bad going on in our lives. What we do is we approach our friends and we say, hey, this is going on, and, uh, and we're really complaining when we're acting like we're giving a prayer request. Like, hey, so-and-so said this, or so-and-so did this. Or, hey, I was at work just yesterday and so-and-so's grandpa, you know, and, and all those things. And sometimes things really bad happen that we shouldn't share with other people because maybe that other person doesn't want you to share that with the public. But I think sometimes when we're giving people prayer requests, we're really doing it in the guise of a prayer request, but it's really gossip. I think we need to be careful of that because if we end up gossiping, not only do we not pray, but we also cause someone else possibly to stumble. So we got to be careful about that. So my whole point is summed up in what John Bunyan said. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of John Bunyan. He was a man uh, in the 17, I think 1700s. He was put into prison, but he was a, he became a Christian while he was in there, and he started to write. And he had not he hadn't even graduated high school, but he wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. And I don't know if it was in that book or not, but he put it this way. He said, "You can do more than pray." after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. I think oftentimes we want to do something to help people out and, and we have the right motive and we want to help them, but we don't do it with the right power. We don't pray first. And so that's my whole point. We need to pray before we do anything because we need to make sure that we have discernment. We have God's heart in a situation. So <clears throat> while we notice that they responded by praying, that's important, right? Let us not miss out on what they prayed. So verse 24 says, when they, heard that they, when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord, and they said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot, in vain, plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, meaning the Messiah. Verse 27, 
For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So here we get an insight into what the apostles were praying. They, adore, they start out their prayer by adoring God for who he is. I think oftentimes we pray, but we don't recognize in our prayer who we are praying to. Recognizing that he's created everything that you and I can see with our human eye, and even the things that are unseen, he's created by his words. It blows me away that the cosmos, the world, and then the universe, and then everything surrounding the universe was all created by the word, by the mouth of God. We oftentimes pray as if God's this this little God. And what God's desiring for us to do when we pray is to recognize, first of all, who we're praying to. Because when we realize who we're praying to, the problem that's right in front of us, sometimes it's a big one and sometimes it's a small one. But no matter what the size, that problem is still way smaller than our God. It says that he holds the universe in the span of his hand. I don't know about you guys, but my hands are small. My hands are like this size. But God's hands are so big that the whole universe fits within the span of just his hand. Your hand is a small part of your body. So he's a big God. He is able to deal with your issue, big or small. So he's praying, and these men are praying, and they prayed, you are God, you're in control of this situation, even though we don't know how. Just like in the past, they say, you spoke ahead of time of the nations that would rage against and the people plotting in vain and the fact that the kings of the earth and the rulers were gathered together against Jesus, his own son. But they, they, they quote from Psalm chapter one, excuse me, chapter two, verse one and two, where it says, why did the nations rage? Why did the people plot in vain? The things of the earth took their, st- the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. They're going, everyone's against us right now. We're trying to do your will, God, but all of our enemies are against us. They're telling us not to do what you told us to do. But we also recognize that this is the same thing that Jesus went through. Jesus came to be the salvation for the world and the nations, the kings, everyone's against us, but Everyone was against Jesus. So we recognize that even in situations where people are against us, you're not unaware of that. We recognize that you were even in control when the leaders of Israel decided they were going to kill the Messiah. So now that we recognize that you can be in control even when it doesn't seem like it's going to go well for us, what are you going to do about it, Lord? How are you going to get us out of this fix? How are you going to make this atrocity in our lives be a blessing to all those that will hear us. If we continue to preach in Jesus' name, we're going to get in trouble, but we recognize that you might have a good purpose for it. So Lord, help us. And that's what they pray there. Verse 29. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to us, your servants, that with all boldness they may speak your word. Help us to keep speaking anyway. Help us to keep going even though 
it might mean we get thrown back in jail, even though we might get beaten. I want you to notice there, when they're praying, verse 27, for truly against your holy servant, Jesus was yours, Lord, it was against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So they're not only saying, Lord, you're in control, but they're saying, this is your plan. It's on you. I think oftentimes we worry about things because we're worried about how it'll look bad on us. Notice that when they're praying, they're saying, Lord, this is your deal. You started this whole thing. What are you going to do about it? Do you realize that when the problems that you and I face, when we recognize that they're not really our problems, but they're God's, he's got bigger shoulders than us. We can go, Lord, this thing's yours. You put me in this situation. What are you going to do? And then it takes the pressure off. Do you remember when Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, because my burden is light. Do you ever feel like your burden is heavy? Realize that it's because that burden isn't yours. You're not supposed to be lifting it. It's his. Cast it back on him. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. So they pray, Lord, look on their threats. Hear what they were saying to us. And give to us, your servants, give us boldness that we may continue to speak by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So recognizing that, they're now praying to that God who would hear that it's his mighty work that he wants to accomplish. But I want you to notice, on top of what we've noticed that they did pray, notice what they did not pray. They did not pray, Lord, get these evil men to stop threatening us. Get them to stop. They didn't pray that. But instead they prayed, Lord, give us boldness to continue to witness to these people anyway. Even if the threats continue. And notice also that when they prayed, God answered. Verse 31. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. They said, Lord, help us. And then he did. He helped them. But I think oftentimes we think, no matter what I pray, God should do it. As if he's some sort of genie. But I think there's always a stipulation on the things that we pray. And we need to be very aware of that. So go ahead and turn to John chapter 14. Because Jesus right there in John 14 verse 12 is teaching his disciples how to pray. But he's also teaching them that when they pray, God will hear. John chapter 14, verse 12. It says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's his goal that the Father would be glorified in the Son. Well, if Jesus is no longer here, 
How is the Father glorified in the Son? Well, when we are in Christ, we are in the Son, and when our lives reflect Him, our lives bring glory to the name of the Father. And so he says there, whatever you ask, stipulation, in my name, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now I think oftentimes we don't really recognize what that phrase means, in my name. Does that mean the way that we pray, so I get done praying, I say, in Jesus' name, amen? Because that's kind of like the period at the end of most of our prayers, right? We say, in Jesus' name, amen. But when we say we're praying in Jesus' name, we're kind of blanketing in the rest of our prayer to conclude and say, Lord, I'm praying all this in your name. But that word name that we're saying, we kind of get used to saying, we just say it. But what does it mean? When we're praying in Jesus' name, it means, Lord, I'm praying within your will, within your character. I want my desires to be your desires. So if I'm praying anything that's not actually in your name, get rid of it. Don't answer it, you know? And I think sometimes we we wonder, Lord, I don't know if I'm praying in your name or not. I don't know if I'm praying something that you want. And the way we can find out is we can go and we can look in scripture and find out if that's something that the Lord's actually about in his character, in his long-term plan, in his scheme of things. Does he want them to continue to preach? Does he want to empower them to do it? Yes. And so when he answers, he says, hey, I'm going to empower you to do it. Thank you for asking me, you know. Hey, um, imagine this. Imagine if one of our parents, if they're still around, said, hey, I need you to mow my grass. We're like, great, I'd love to mow the grass. That never happens. But say we wanted to mow the grass for them. So we go, okay, can I use your mower? Yeah, no problem. Uh, But there's no gas in it. So you go out there and you're pulling it, you're pulling it, you're like, there's no gas in this thing. Where's the gas can? And we go to our parents, we're like, hey, um, can we have gas to do this? No. Well, of course they're going to give you gas, right? Because they want you to mow the grass. They're going to give you the power to do what they've asked you to do. Well, God's the same way. When he says, go and preach to the nations, he's not going, hey, go out and do that. I'm going to be over here and be lounging in the easy chair. He's saying, Lord, he's saying, go and preach to the nations and when you come across a hard spot or if you run out of gas, ask me for more. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. That's what they're praying. That's the gas for the believer. That's the way he empowers us. He says, I will send you the Holy Spirit and he will give you the ability to testify of me, to tell of Jesus. So, end of the story. He answered, he filled them, and they continued to preach in boldness. So verse 32 of Acts. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. And they laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. So as always, what we see is that when any group of believers prays to their God together as a group, 
There is power in all that they do. It says there that the apostles testified with power, meaning that the words that they said affected those that were hearing them. And there also, number two, not just power, but number two, there was unity amongst the group. They considered one another's needs above their own, and they started to invest in one another. The fruits of the Spirit started to manifest themselves. They had love for one another. They had love for other Christians. The fruits of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 6, I believe. Love. But love has to be described, right? Because love has lots of different definitions in our culture. Love can mean, hey, I saw somebody the other day and I love them. Well, or I love a cheeseburger. Or I love my wife. See, all those different words mean different things, right? Because you don't love, hopefully, your wife or your children as much as you love a cheeseburger. Well, vice versa. Hopefully you don't love a cheeseburger as much as you love your wife or your your family. But love is defined in the fruits of the Spirit as joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Now that's a lot of words. That encompasses a lot of different feelings and emotions. But it also encompasses a lot of actions. Joy, peace, patience. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Sorry. <laughs> My wife taught me that. She loves me. So. <laughs> so, that's what I wanted to point out. Just that these believers, when they were in unity, it wasn't just because they had everything in common. They didn't all play basketball. They didn't all work on cars together. They didn't all do man stuff together, Jacob. They, what they had in common was Jesus. And so when they had something that would clash with one another, their common bond wasn't about whether or not they liked Duck Dynasty. Their common bond wasn't whether or not they agreed with politics. Their common bond had to do with they all had Jesus. They were all partakers of the same salvation. They had all been washed in the same blood. They had all been given new life in Him, in Jesus. And so they were all of one mind, not because they agreed on everything, but because they had the same source of life. And so without Jesus, our, each one of us are completely bankrupt. You know, Because this group is also filled with a bunch of people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. They weren't all rich, but they weren't all poor. They had Jesus in common. And so that love that they had for one another, Jesus being their central bound, had to do with the fact that love covers a multitude of sins. When they would step on one another's toes, I'm sure they had to have grace with one another. Because I don't know about you guys, but I say things out of turn sometimes. And I can completely put off a whole crowd just by a certain word I would say. You know, because it has different meanings. Not thinking about it. So my point is, with unity of mind and possessions, no one considered themselves better than the other. And with power, the apostles gave testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. And as they continued in learning about Jesus from the apostles, they provided for one another's need. As each one, had somebody had something extra, they'd give to the other person. Not like we would consider where you're forced to share your stuff, like communism, but more along the lines of communism. Each one gave to one another as they saw the need. They didn't have somebody going, hey, you've got extra of this, you need to share. They, they just had a love for one another that caused them to, they couldn't help it. 
But just as anything can be tainted, we're actually going to see next week a little drama. Because so far in the early church, we've seen a lot of, we love everybody and we're all sharing our stuff and everybody gets along. But we all know that in a perfect world, that'd be great. But we don't live in a perfect world. There are people that have hidden motives. There are hypocrites. And so what we're going to see next week is there's going to be a couple of people that are going to have wrong motives and they're going to act like they're giving their stuff to the Lord. But they're really not. Because you guys might not know this, but there are many people that do things in order to be seen by people rather than to be faithful to God. And so we'll see that next week. But what I want to leave you all with this week is, first of all, if someone that you spend a lot of time with were to describe you, how would they describe you? And would one of the characteristics be you're a Christian? But more than that, would one of the characteristics be that they recognize that you've been with Jesus? Number two, how do you deal with hostility or ridicule from those who are against God's plan? The Sadducees were not in line with what God wanted to do through them. And so because of that, they weren't just like neutral about God, but they were against his plan. They weren't in line, and so it caused them to persecute those who were actually trying to fulfill his calling on their life. So if, if you come across opposition this week, how would you handle it? Would you pray that God would take it away from you? Or would you pray that God would give you the ability to keep going anyway? I think those are marks of maturity in a Christian walk. So, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5 as our last reference, and then I'll close. Matthew chapter 5, from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaching his disciples there. This was what Jesus had to say about dealing with opposition, dealing with our enemies, our, our persecution. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, I think we could probably all agree that that's kind of what our culture says. Love those that love you and hate those that are against you. Makes sense, right? Do unto others. But I say to you, Jesus said, Love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Easier said than done, right? But here's the reason, verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so? He says, if you do these things, therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Do you know when Jesus is allowing opposition or hard times in our lives, he's doing it so that we can be perfected, so that we can be purified. It cleanses us. It Checks our motives. Are you really doing this for them? Or are you doing this for the pat on the back you're going to get? Because the disciples were loving people that they had no possibility of them blessing them back. They were loving them like Jesus did. God has placed people in each one of our lives, people who are downright hard to get along with. People that are rude, brash, prideful, and downright 
I was going to say hard to love, but impossible to love. Stop trying to get away from them and start trying to get to see them with God's eyes. Pray that God would fill you with his spirit and make you a witness. Pray that God would give you the ability to love them anyway. God's love is revealed in this, and this is why this should be our motive for loving our enemies. While we were still against God, while we were still enemies with God, Christ died for us. How can we, those who have been given, excuse me, been forgiven and made sons and daughters of God, how can we not show the same love to those who are still enemies of God? How can they see the love of God unless we do that? They can't. So let's pray for boldness. And as we will pray together for boldness, what we will get to see is God give us love for our enemies and he will give us even more love for one another and a common goal that will make us closer as the body of Christ. We will seek to bless one another, serve one another, and we'll teach sinners God's ways and sinners will be converted to him. They'll become disciples. They'll see him in a very tangible way. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for loving us. I think oftentimes I start to think that you loved me because I deserved it. But you loved me in order to reveal the heart of your Father to me so that I would be converted and that my ways would be changed and that my ultimate destination would be changed. Thank you for being willing to reach down when I was spitting on you, when I was... I would have been just like those that were scourging you uh, because the fact that you were perfect pointed out the fact that I was imperfect. So Lord, may we not find our identity in anyone but who you are. And may we be able to learn how to love like you love. Help us to love our enemies. Help us to bless those who curse us. Help us to be light and salt in our community. And Lord, help us to not consider the cost but just to consider the cost that you were willing to pay. Lord, thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for this time this morning to to study your word. And I pray that the seeds that were sown this morning would take deep root in our hearts and they, they would affect the way that we live our lives. It's not to us, Lord, but to your name be the glory. In Jesus' name.